Radio. You're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. IRE, with you on your beat for 40 years. I'm Sean Shinneman, and this week we're taking a look at a joint investigation between the Marshall Project and NPR. Two teamed up to look at what happens when prisoners go straight from solitary confinement back to the streets. Which is a sort of odd thing that here they were, they came out of solitary confinement. Um, often the people we talked to had a hard time adjusting to coming back into society. They had a hard time, well, we heard this over and over again, they had a hard time being around people. The reporters on this story, the Marshall Project's Christy Thompson and NPR's Joseph Shapiro, who you just heard, had plenty of roadblocks to work through. Their data was incomplete. Only 24 states could actually provide numbers on prisoners released directly from solitary. And while the figures they did get showed that at least 10,000 people went through this last year, they had a hard time finding a human face for the story. Once they did, they had to wrestle with some ethical questions. Who could they trust? What could they verify? What could they print? I mean, that's the problem with all prison reporting is like you have people that are alleging stuff. There's not a lot of paper documents about it. If it is, a lot of times you can't get it, and the prison's not going to confirm or deny or really say anything about specific cases. So what do you do in the face of that, you know? More on that coming up on the IRE Radio Podcast. Back before the Marshall Project existed, and Christy Thompson was an intern at ProPublica, she was doing some reporting on solitary confinement in New York. Last summer, I went to an open community meeting in Brownsville in Brooklyn and was hearing from a lot of people who had been through solitary and their family members. And they were talking about this experience of being in SHU, as it's called in New York, and then coming straight home, like going from spending months or years in isolation and then returning to your family and just not knowing how to cope. Christy realized that as much as she'd read about solitary confinement, she hadn't heard much about this phenomenon. Inmates who'd go straight from solitary to the streets. So, fast forward to the summer of 2014. Christy is now at the Upstart, the Marshall Project, and she's pitching the story to her editor, Bill Keller, former executive editor of the New York Times. At this point, she'd also done a little preliminary research and discovered that in some states, the people who are released straight from solitary are more likely to quote-unquote max out. Which means come out without any supervision or support than people that are coming from general population. Which, in a way, makes sense. Because you're not going to be approved for parole in the box, but it's also really counterintuitive. Okay, so in August of 2014, she pitches Bill Keller. Initially, he was like, this is interesting, but this is not a 50-state FOIA story. Like, don't mire yourself in FOIAing all 50 (laughs) states. So I kind of cheated and said, well, I'm going to at least call all 50 states to find out if this is something they keep track of and how often they do this. Christy set out on that mission, and the Marshall Project met with NPR to go over some options for collaboration. Here's Joe. We said we were interested in working with the Marshall Project last October. Um, it took so a long time, though, to find people who'd come out of solitary confinement and gone straight to the streets, even though it was, our, our numbers showed just from half the states that there are 10,000 
people like this every year. The numbers they tracked down were imperfect. They only came from half the states, and the reporting of them was incomplete. But Christy and Joe found that last year, of the 24 states that actually could provide numbers, more than 10,000 inmates had been released straight from solitary to the streets. The other 26 states plus the Federal Bureau of Prisons didn't provide a figure. Still, the numbers they did have were significant enough to say that this is happening. People are getting released out of jail straight from solitary confinement. Thousands of them. It seemed like finding someone to tell the story should not have been all that difficult. I was trying to go through reentry organizations, local prisoner family support groups, etc. And what a lot of people were telling me um, is that these people in many states kind of disappear because they come out, they often aren't on parole. So a lot of times they don't know what reentry services exist. They don't know how to connect with those kinds of organizations and nonprofits that we think of as providing to support for people that are coming home for prison. And then many times they end up going back. The search takes Joe and Christy to Arizona, where in addition to meeting with a researcher who's been studying this phenomenon, they talked with a potential source. She was clearly dealing with the effects of solitary confinement. When they went to verify parts of her story, they found out much of what she'd been telling them was wrong. So, they moved on. Finally, they found Mark. Mark turns 22 this month. He was turning 21 a year ago when he was getting out of jail after about five years locked up, two and a half of which were spent in solitary confinement. Mark has a history of mental health issues. The reporters found him through the Texas ACLU, who put them in touch with the local family of prisoners agency put them in touch with Sarah Garcia, Mark's mom. He's not used to anybody touching him. So he's not used to hugs and, I mean, we grabbed him. I mean, we hugged him, we held him. I mean, it was just surreal to just know that he's, I can finally give him a hug. That was Sarah from one of Joe's stories. Her openness and patience during interviews made up for some initial concerns Christy had about using Mark as a source. Mark actually initially wasn't our ideal choice because he had been rearrested and he was in uh, jail in Austin. And so he wasn't super accessible to us. And he's also someone who himself has a lot of um, mental health and and mental disability issues. But his mother, when we went down there and spent a couple days with her in Austin, she just, you kind of understood how in when there are no services for someone, if they are lucky enough to have family, it falls on women like Sarah. And just talking to her about watching her son change and watching him struggle in these only four months that he was able to stay out before he ended up committing another crime. So when we went down there, I was like not sure that he was really going to fit. But after we met Sarah, she was just so open with us and could speak so deeply about how this had changed her family that it was like, okay, yeah, this is definitely our person. When they found Mark, he had just been rearrested for armed robbery, so they turned to his relatives. Then, another twist. Mark's uncle, who had himself once spent time in solitary confinement, also found himself back behind bars. So when we went to Austin, they were both being held in the same jail. And at the jail, we could visit them, but we couldn't take in notebooks, we couldn't take in recorders. Like, it, it, was, it was very difficult. Christy and Joe were able to set up a video visitation conference with Mark, which is where most of his direct quotes in the story come from. So, access is one issue they had to work around. Another was figuring out how to handle details from Mark's time within the jail, which they weren't always able to confirm. 
I asked Christy how she handled a specific section of her story involving Mark. Something like prison officials sent him to segregation when he was 18 for allegedly threatening to run away. Like, right. are there documents you can get that say that? Or how no. are you confirming that? No, so the key word there is allegedly in all of okay. that. So a lot of the stuff about internal prison movement and stuff, we just had to sort of couch that it was Mark that was telling us this and his mom and his dad and his uncles. Um, and then what we did, I mean, for the early stuff, we got all of his, Sarah was really open with sharing with us his mental health records from when he was in juvenile detention, from when he was before, like from when he was in school, um, and like court records for his pending arrest and all that. I spoke with his current lawyer just to like clarify the details of what he's facing and that sort of thing. Um, so we were able to confirm all of that with documents. In terms of the internal prison stuff, we just had to sort of couch it that it was them that was telling us this, and we tried to talk to Texas about it, and they wouldn't talk to us at all about specifics mm-hmm. of his case. Um, but, you know, we we basically were confirmed everything we could through documents, and when all of that matched up and when Sarah and Mark and his dad and her and her brothers who were close with him were kind of telling us the same story, we felt comfortable just saying this is what they're telling us. Did you guys have those conversations between between yourself and, and your editor or editors about like like what you could say, what you could could trust from from these people and what you No, couldn't? I talked about it Joe and I talked about it a lot. And he is like such a veteran that I sort of deferred to him on some of those decisions. Um I, I talked a lot to my editors about who we were picking. Like not exactly then the specifics of what we were saying, but more how do we someone who we can trust because so much of this is, I mean, that's the problem with all prison reporting is like you have people that are alleging stuff. There's not a lot of paper documents about it. If it is, a lot of times you can't get it and the prison's not going to confirm or deny or really say anything about specific cases. So what do you do in the face of that? You know, I think what we ended up going with is figuring out someone who we could talk to enough people so it wasn't just this one person's word and confirming other parts that we could confirm through documentation and then just like you know being clear that this is like a retold story christy senator's story on mark opening with a scene of his release from prison last july an awkward embrace between a mother and a closed-off son. She ends the story back at the jail with a conversation between Mark and his mom. Mark had been picked back up four months after his release for allegedly robbing a gas station with a knife in hand. In the middle of her story, Christy ties in bits about another character, 50-year-old Brian Nelson. I prefer away from the crowds and all that stuff. I get very jittery if there's too many people. And if I'm alone... I could do a lot more work. Brian spent 12 of his 28 years in prison for murder and armed robbery in solitary confinement. Today, he works as a paralegal and a prisoner's advocate in Chicago. So we flew out to Chicago to spend some time with him. And ultimately, I was writing the story just all as Mark's story and Mm -hmm. using him. And my editor read the first draft and came away saying, you know, this is compelling, but I really want to hear from someone who went into solitary without a lot of mental health issues Um, and came out pretty traumatized because Mark had so many problems before he even went in. Brian was traumatized to the point where the interview became difficult, an exercise in wielding compassion. 
For one, and this was a challenge throughout the process, Christy and Joe needed different things. Christy wanted the small, meticulous details to make the narrative sing. Joe would sometimes need to ask the same question two or three times to get the right sound clip. The interviews would have been taxing for anyone, but for Brian, it was that much more difficult. So we would like spend several hours talking to him, and then he would break down and have to leave the room and have to take a break. Christy and Joe went out to lunch with Brian and another guy who'd just gotten out of prison. And you could just see in Brian the impact of all the years in solitary. He's jangling his keys. He has to, like, leave this diner twice. He chews his nails. He um, can't drink out of glass, like, glasses or use, like, metal cutlery because he just got so used to using plastic in solitary all those times that it, like, still feels strange to him. So he's, like, drinking his coffee out of a red Solo cup. Um, and wow. by the end of the day, I mean, with Sarah, we spent two days with her. We interviewed her for, like, like hours on end, like eight, you know, just for so long. Also partially because doing both an audio story and a print story, we almost have to like ask the same question twice, but in different ways because we're trying to get different things. Um, So that probably is what made it longer. But with Brian, as of like 4 p.m., he was like, okay, are you guys almost done? Because like I need to stop. Like I am totally emotionally spent. I mean, he cried multiple times that day. We checked, we fact-checked, like, the conversation with him, but he told us that he never intended to read what we wrote because it was just too hard for him. I had Joe read from his transcript from the time Brian admitted that he was emotionally spent. One he says, how much more do you guys need? I say, well, how are you doing? He says, bad. I said, well, we can take a break. We can end. I said, can you give us a, some, ten, can we do a 10-minute warning? And he said, how much more do you need? And then, then we started was sort of, uh, uh, negotiating. I said, well, 20 minutes? You know, I said, how are you doing? And so he said, okay, let's do, let's do that. The interview went on for another 14 minutes. He said, you know what? I, I can't. Uh, he said, I'm, I'm, uh, this is, I'm sort of done. And, and then we ended it. You know, we knew this, and, and we appreciated the fact that he was going to open up and, and tell the story to us. We knew it was hard to get people who could tell the story or would tell the story. And uh, and he was very good at telling it. So we wanted to be sort of, we wanted to be cognizant of, 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 his, of, of his limits. I think his story is very important, but it's so strange interviewing someone and in that process recognizing that you're like re-traumatizing them in a little bit. I mean, he was very willing and wanted to do the interview, but you're like, I mean, I was at this point where he was like, are you guys almost done? And I asked one more question that I thought was a happy question. I said, what makes you happy? And he said, just being able to hug my girlfriend and broke down crying and was like, that wasn't a happy question. And I just felt terrible. You know, I just Mm -hmm. felt like a, I know why I'm doing this, but it was hard realizing that you're like, you know, hurting someone in the act of interviewing Maybe Maybe this is just like the story I tell myself, but isn't it in something like that also a little bit therapeutic to to get if you if you've been keeping that inside to yeah to retell I, think, that? I think for some people it is I think for Sarah it was I think for Sarah she was like this happened to my son and I haven't like who do I talk to about sure. this you know she tries to write letters and call but she doesn't know and no one really cares frankly or has so I think for her it was really therapeutic to be able to just share what happened to her son and and how 
solitary impacted her family. For Brian, I think he's someone who he has talked about it because he is an advocate, and so he's talked about it a lot. And at this point, I think it just wears on him to to think about it again and to like mentally be put back in that box and remember how it smelled and how it felt and how he couldn't move and how, you know. For Christy and Joe, the story offered several lessons. Having two interviewers reporting for different formats was a challenge in some ways, but in another, for Christy, it provided an opportunity. For Joe, a lot of it was about setting the scene. So, okay, we're going to take you back to the shell station that Mark robbed for him to before he was rearrested and have you talk to me about that night and how you found out in front of this shell station. I would never... I mean, I would maybe go there, but I wouldn't necessarily bother to, like, do the interview in that space, or I wouldn't think to, to do that. And in some ways, that was really helpful for me to think about, like, scene and place and um, that sort of, you know, we, had, yeah. we drove to where that, I mean, I would have wanted to see the house where Mark was living, but to go to the house and have Sarah tell me about the times that she would walk up and see him sitting on the porch drinking beer in front of there, not just me going there later, or, you know, that was really good. This is a story that in Joe's eyes was made possible through the collaboration. He credited the Marshall Project for doing a lot of the heavy lifting on surveying states for numbers. It took a long time to do this survey, um, and to put get these numbers, to put them together, and, um, uh, but I think it was, it was worth the time, and, and that's the value often of collaboration, because you're working with uh, people who have staff that can help do this, uh, can take the time to do a big project like this. And, and, and I, I think that we had something to add. Um, and I, I think the focus on people coming straight out of solitary back home, I think, was new. And I think the numbers that we were able to, to do uh, also uh, provided something new. Thank you for listening. You can find past episodes on our website, ire.org slash podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to stay up to date with the latest episodes. And if you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you leave us a review or a rating on iTunes. This helps new listeners find the show. If you did find us already through a subscription for today's show, you might click over to our website for more about this investigation. We'll have links to the online and radio pieces, as well as a pretty cool piece on how reporters can localize this story using the Marshall Project data. Again, that's ire.org slash podcast. And as always, if you have any questions or comments about the podcast, IRE or anything else, please do shoot us an email. IRE web editor Sarah Hutchins edits the podcast and can be reached at web at ire.org. Or you can reach me at Sean S, that's S-H-A-W-N-S, at ire.org. That's it for this episode. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Sean Chinaman.
radio. Podcast. Podcast. You might want to do that already. Okay. Podcast. Podcast.